have you seen God? This is the question that I'm inviting you into this morning, inviting you to wrestle with, inviting you to find an answer for. Maybe you have a quick response, a list of the ways you have seen God. Or maybe that question makes you feel really uncomfortable because God seems distant. Maybe like Zacchaeus, it's a little of both, a little bit of quick response and also a little bit of discomfort because you've perched yourself dangerously high on a tree branch because you heard about Jesus coming. And if you could just catch a glimpse of him, maybe you could see what all the fuss is about. But you second guess whether you are actually prepared to interact with this Jesus. I imagine the anxiety that might have gripped Zacchaeus in that moment when Jesus looked up and locked eyes with him. Oh my gosh, don't look at me. Don't look at me. Blend in. Chameleon, blend in with the leaves. It'll be fine. I don't want him to see me. What if he knows who I am and what I've done? But then Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I'm going to come to your house today. And it's like something, I would say the Holy Spirit fills Zacchaeus with joy and receptivity and response, and he jumps at the chance. He gets out of that tree and invites Jesus into his home. Zacchaeus saw Jesus, and Zacchaeus was seen by Jesus. And in those moments, Zacchaeus encountered the healing and the wholeness that Jesus came to bring. A thrill of hope stirred within him, and the next thing you know, Zacchaeus is there, stirring up something for dinner, eagerly committing to change everything about his life in order to live like Jesus. The funny part about, about that story, about Jesus' response, about Zacchaeus' response, is that Jesus never asked Zacchaeus to do anything that, except have him into his house. Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus to give away half of his possessions to the poor or to pay back everyone he had defrauded four times over. Jesus didn't have to say anything because Jesus' spirit had seen God and he was changed on the spot. Salvation had come to his house and he would not look back to his old way of life. This kind of self-initiated confession, like Jesus didn't wag his finger at him or say, Zacchaeus, you know what you've done, turn and sin no more. Because sometimes Jesus does have to say that to us. Jesus doesn't have a pat response for every person he meets. His response is different based on what that person needs. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't, he didn't lead him down the Romans road or use a wordless bracelet. Those things could be helpful, but the Holy Spirit knows what the person needs. And this story of this kind of, okay, I'll give everything back and I'm going to give half of my stuff to the poor and I'm going to be the exact opposite version of the self I was before. It reminds me of this story that Rachel told me this week about my daughter. 
So I went to pick up the girls at the end of the day. I might get some of these details wrong. You might have to double check with Rachel. But Rachel told me that she was in the other room and she heard Junia start crying. So she walked in to see what was going on and Kirsten immediately came over to Rachel and said, I pushed Junia. And before Rachel could reply, Kirsten went on to say, I'm going to go sit on the couch now. <laughs> a few minutes after the self-inflicted timeout, Kirsten got down and said, I think I'm ready to say I'm sorry. And she went over to her sister and said, I'm sorry for pushing you, June. And she gave her a big hug. And they went back to play. <laughs> and I thought, what a beautiful thing. I think this is what it looks like to be in the presence of Jesus. That you don't always do the right thing to begin with, but you're eager to repent and turn and make things right again. But then there are times in our lives when we feel a little more like the prophet Habakkuk. When we're appalled by the devastation going on around us, when we're desperate for God to hear our prayers. What then? What about in the dark times when we can't see God? When we don't see Jesus? When we climb to the highest branch and we still can't find him? When we wonder, where has God's spirit gone to? So as Dan read for us, and if you'd like to follow along, Habakkuk 1, he cries out, Oh Lord, how long do I have to cry for help and you will not listen? Or cry to you, Violence! And you will not save? Why do you make me see the wrongdoing and look at the trouble? Verse 4 says, So the law becomes slack and justice never prevails. But then get this, he says, I will stand at the watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me, what he will answer concerning my complaint. So Habakkuk was not seeing God at the moment. There was horrendous wrongdoing going on, destruction and violence, and Habakkuk had no answer to the question, where is God in this? Can you relate? Consider for a moment a darkness that you have faced or a darkness that you're facing now. How would you answer, where is God in this? Let's take our cues from, I, from Habakkuk. 
Let's climb up onto that rampart wall and wait and watch for God. So when our lips cry, where are you, God? Our consolation, the thing we cling to, is the vision that we have caught of God before. Now this poses a problem because maybe you haven't seen God before. Maybe you haven't seen Jesus or experienced the Holy Spirit. In which case I urge you to wait. I urge you to, to, to yell at God. Where are you? Show yourself to me. Because when we cling to this, this experience of God, to a recollection of God being with us, then that proof of God, that he loves us, that he sees us, is our hope when it's dark. Because every night when it gets so dark out, we have hope that the sun will rise again in the morning. Because we've seen it. It's the same with God. In the darkest moment, we cling to the hope. There was one commentator I read who wrote this beautiful commentary on Habakkuk. Her name is Pamela Cooper White. She's a Columbia Theological Seminary professor. What if we, like Habakkuk, would just station ourselves at a watch post? Maybe it's a quiet room in our home, outdoors in nature, somewhere at work, a formal place of worship, or even more metaphorically, a place inside ourselves, a rampart within our hearts, and demand that God clear a way for us, send us a glimpse of healing or wholeness for ourselves and our world. What if we were even to yell at God for a little bit about the devastation and the grief that we are seeing? What if we refused to turn away and waited with determination for God's reply? This kind of reminded me of Kirsten, too, when I tell her, Daddy's coming home. And it's going to be a, a while still, but we know he's coming home. She opens the front door and sits on the front porch, and I say, Kirsten, come inside. It's still going to be a while. No. I'm going to wait here and look down that street because as soon as my dad turns the corner, I'm jumping up and running to him. She's waiting and watching and she's not being moved. And it's that kind of stubborn insistence that we need to get us through the dark times. There's another type of commitment. So I'm not really a sermon illustration girl, but to, they just came to me to, this week. So this type of fierce commitment, of waiting determinedly for hope, for an answer, it reminded me of Dog Monday. Dog Monday is a surprisingly important character in the series Anne of Green Gables. I just finished the series a few months ago, and Lucy Montgomery's book, later in the series, the last book is called Rilla of Ingleside. And this story chronicles the life of Anne's grown children as they face the devastation of World War I. So in 1914, as the war breaks out, 
Anne's oldest son, his name is Jem. Jem enlists in the war. The whole family, including Jem's dog Monday, that was his name, Dog Monday, waited as he said his goodbyes on the train. And Dog Monday watches as the train takes his beloved master away. And they all walk home in tears. And Montgomery writes this. Nobody missed Dog Monday at first. When they did, Shirley went back for him. He found Dog Monday curled up in one of the shipping sheds and tried to coax him home. Dog Monday would not move. He wagged his tail to show he had no hard feelings, but no blandishments availed to budge him. I guess Dog Monday has made up his mind to wait there until Jem comes back, Shirley reported. And that is exactly what Dog Monday had done. His dear master had gone. He, Monday, had been deliberately and of malice of forethought prevented from going with him by a demon disguised as a Methodist minister. Wherefore, he, Monday, would wait there until the smoking, snorting monster which had carried his hero off carried him back. I wait there, little faithful dog with soft, wistful, puzzled eyes, but it will be many a long, bitter day before your boyish comrade comes back to you. So the Blythe family builds a shed for Dog Monday there at the train station, and there the dog stayed for four years, watching hundreds of trains come and go, boys in khaki boarding and returning home. But Monday would not lose hope he would not take his eyes off of that train track. He would wait for his master. And then the book says, Dog Monday met and never had the boy he waited and watched for returned. Yet still Dog Monday watched on with eyes that never quite lost hope. So the story continues for 30 some odd chapters until four horribly long years had passed. And it's 1918, and the war has ended, and still Jem had not returned. At long last, spoiler alert, Jem returns, and Dog Monday greeted him with all the enthusiasm and grief and love and lament that you might expect. And that dog never left Jem's side again. This is how it is with us, I think. When we have experienced the nearness of God, the love of Jesus, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, we cannot forget. During times when the best part of our lives seems to be riding off on a train called cancer, or divorce, or death, or addiction, it feels like desolation and abandonment. Has God left? Where is God in this? And so, like Dog Monday, we set up shop on the train station platform. We eat and sleep and watch and wait, trusting and hoping, expecting 
and knowing that we will see God again. Now the metaphor isn't perfect because Jesus doesn't actually leave us like Jem left. But sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it's the good parts of our lives that seem to be taking a turn for the worse and leaving us forever. We experience loss and grief. We wonder if we'll ever be healed and made whole, like Pastor Melanie seems to think will happen. But God will never leave us nor forsake us. And Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth. You know him because he abides with you, and he will be in you. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace. I give you. Once our hearts have seen God, if only for a moment, we are drawn to seek God forever. So how have you seen God? This is one of the reasons why I believe it is essential to gather in Christian community. Because some of us sitting in this room have no idea what it is like to see God. But when we listen in to one another's stories, when we listen, as, as maybe Donna tells, of how she's seeing God again, when we hear Dan say, I saw God, when we hear Kevin talk about how he's seen God, we begin to learn what to look for. It is essential for us to tell our stories, friends. Our encounters with God must be declared with joy because we're telling the glory of God. But also, when we catch a glimpse of Jesus in our midst and we share this with others, it's not only for God's glory, it's a lifeline, an anchor for someone else. Don't stop telling your stories, even when they sound silly, even when they sound insignificant, because that is someone else's lifeline to God. Again, Pamela Cooper White writes, Habakkuk knew God's response was not just for him, but for his whole community who was suffering. This is the promise that also comes from our reading the text together in community. By sharing our faith with one another, we stand on the ramparts together. We will never have to cry out to God or wait for a vision alone. So if you haven't seen God, or maybe you've forgotten what God looks like, Pray earnestly. Shout, demand, stand on the ramparts and be as stubborn as possible and say, I'm not leaving until you show yourself. And remember that you are not alone. You are surrounded by people who are following Jesus and who have seen God, who have experienced the 
Spirit being produced in their lives in ways that we could never conjure up ourselves, who have seen the mercy and generosity of God, who have witnessed their prayers answered. And so we are in this together, reminding one another, bringing food to the ones waiting on the train tracks. So when someone suffers, the rest of us join them. We sit in their lament. We wait with them. We pray with them. We weep with them. We demand to hear from God with them. Have you seen God? Remember your visions in dark times. Pray and cry and yell for God to be seen once again. And maybe your prayer will sound a little like this one from Reverend Ted Loder. It's called, God, Are You There? I pray this over each of you. God, are you there? I've been taught and told I ought to pray, but the doubt won't go away. Yet neither will my longing to be heard. My soul sighs too deep for words. Do you hear me? God, are you there? Are you where love is? I don't love well or often anything or anyone. But when I do, when I take the risk, there's a sudden awareness of all I've missed, and it's good. It's singing good. For a moment, life seems as it should. But I forget. So busy soon that it was, or what, or whom. Help me. God, are you there? And it is in this desire to see God and know God that we come once again desperate to his holy table where he invites us and where he says, see, my blood, my body broken and poured out for you.